1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, you'll note here uh, right out of the gate that Peter starts this epistle in very similar fashion to the way Paul starts his epistle to the Ephesians. When we read in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, Yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 16. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to verse 13. Notice what Peter writes there. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you noticed it or not in our Bible reading, but if you go back and read over these verses again, you will see that there is an emphasis on the topic of salvation in this portion of Scripture. It's mentioned specifically in verse 5 even though it's described in the previous verses. But in verse 5, you read the word salvation for the first time in this epistle, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
And then you'll notice how verse 6 starts, wherein, and the wherein is making reference to that salvation mentioned in the previous verse. So you could interpret verse 6 as meaning wherein, or in this salvation, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a season of need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. At the end of verse 7, the focus is on Christ. He will appear again, and when he does, the trial of your faith will be found under praise and glory and honor. We don't see him now, verse 8, but we do love him. And because we believe in him, we're able to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And through this process, we receive the end of our faith, even the salvation, there's the word again, of our souls. In verse 9, the focus is still on salvation. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. And in verse 12, we're told that even the angels of heaven have a desire to look into the glory of God in salvation. It doesn't even affect them. Christ did not become an angel. He became a man. And yet the angels are so impressed with the display of glory in salvation that even they have an outside interest in it. So there's an emphasis in these verses on salvation. And it's not until we come to verse 13 that we meet up with what could be called the first practical application of all that Peter's been saying about salvation. Look at what it says, verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grammar of the verse shows us very plainly that the emphasis in this verse, the one imperative, okay, an imperative is a command, the one command that now we are confronted by is that we hope, that we hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm aware that in our English versions, it seems as if there are a number of imperatives. The imperative to gird up the loins of your mind. The imperative seemingly to be sober. And then the imperative to hope to the end. But the phrases, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, are actually connected to the command to hope to the end. Listen to this reading from Young's literal translation. I think this translation captures the participle phrases and shows how they lead to the command. It reads in Young's literal translation, Wherefore, having girded up the loins of your mind, being sober, hope perfectly upon the grace that is being brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope. That's the command. Hope to the end, our authorized version says. Set your hope fully on the grace, the ESV. 
Fix your hope completely on the grace, New American Standard. Hope perfectly upon the grace, Young's literal translation. Hope, hope perfectly. How do you do that? Set your hope, fix your hope. There seems to be in this command a call for resolute determination here, doesn't there? And yet such a call seems a little ambiguous when you try to think of it in terms of hope. In its common usage, the word hope conveys the idea of a wish. I hope it doesn't snow on my way home from church today. (laughs) I hope it doesn't rain today or tomorrow, or I hope I don't catch cold or get sick, or I hope the team that I'm cheering for wins the contest. But in each of these instances, it seems rather superfluous to try to add resolute determination to your hope. If you hope resolutely enough In other words, if you set or fixed your hope on not having it rain tomorrow, will that really have any bearing on the issue? Especially if there's a 90% chance of rain in the forecast. And I'm not saying that there is, I'm just being rhetorical. I don't know what chance there is of rain tomorrow. All I'm saying is, whatever chance there is of it, and you desire it, um, No resolute determination on your part to hope for it is going to have any impact on whether or not it rains. I suppose you can add some effort to your hope of avoiding sickness through the right use of vitamins and the right food and or medications and exercise. But even with every conceivable precaution, it seems that people still get sick, their hope notwithstanding. And certainly in the spiritual realm, we don't live by a hope-so rule of thumb. You don't simply hope that you go to heaven or hope that you avoid condemnation. That's not the way our faith works. If you're following a works righteousness religion where you have to earn your way to heaven, there might be room for the kind of hope so wish in which you hope that your good deeds outweigh your bad ones. In that case, however, you should know that your religion is hopeless rather than hopeful. Sinners don't get into heaven by their works. What then is Peter referring to when he tells us to hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How does a Christian set his hope or fix his hope on the grace of God and salvation? Well, that's the question I want to take up and answer this afternoon. And in answering the question, I want to conduct a simple analysis of the theme, hoping to the end. Hoping to the end. Let's think first of all on where we fix our hope. Peter gives us a very specific thing to which we're to fix our hope. Notice what he says, verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
I don't know how it stands with you, but I can say honestly in my life that the older I get, the more I come to recognize uh, just how great is going to be my need for grace on that day. Oh, I hope, O oh Lord, the testimony of your word is true, that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, because I'm going to need that to be true on that day. You really can't appreciate the meaning of that grace until you contemplate it against the backdrop of judgment. The revelation of Jesus Christ, you see, will in many respects be a terrifying event. So we read in Matthew 25, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Such things as the Lord sitting on his judgment throne, they seem surreal to us while we walk in this world and see spiritual things through a glass darkly. But on that occasion, when he actually does appear, and we discover that judgment is very real, then will we know our need for grace as never before. Some time ago, we studied the character of Joseph in Sunday school. Ron taught the class, but I did have occasion to fill in for Ron on one of those uh, Sundays when he was away. And during the time that I filled the slot, we focused on chapter 45, the revelation of Joseph to his brothers. I described it as a terrifying event to Joseph's brothers because there was no place to hide. There they were before the person they had sinned against. They were the ones that were going to kill him, then sold him into slavery. They knew their sin, and Joseph knew their sin, and they knew that Joseph knew, and Joseph knew that they knew, and as a result, they couldn't answer him a word, but stood terrified and speechless in his presence. It was a terrifying experience for them. They knew what they deserved. But that's but a dim reflection of what the revelation of Jesus Christ will be like. And it is a terrifying event, even for Christians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. That's in 1 Corinthians 3. I believe that grace will be magnified in that day as never before. And just as Joseph's brothers heard him announce a great deliverance rather than a deserved condemnation, so our hope is to be fixed on such an announcement from Christ. That's grace, you see. Favor bestowed where condemnation is deserved. 
Christ will, you see, not only be our judge, but our advocate. He'll plead his blood, and we'll know just how gracious he is. This is where we fix our hope, because apart from fixing it on God's grace, we're hopeless. And if we're going to have any confidence that such a revelation of Christ will be a revelation of his grace or his favor, then we have to know the basis upon which such hope rests. It rests on his atoning death. It rests on the glorious truth that Peter sets before us a little later in this chapter when we read in verses 18 and 19, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. With the hymn writer we affirm my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So we are to hope to the end, which means we are to set our hope or fix our hope on the grace of God as that grace is manifested in Christ's life and Christ's death. In close connection with what Peter tells us, we could add a few things from Paul's epistles that show us where our hope is to be fixed. I love the way Paul states this in Galatians 5 and verse 5. He writes, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. It takes righteousness, you see, to qualify for heaven Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.20 Where will you and I ever get such righteousness? When all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, at our best we're unprofitable servants, at our worst we're guilty sinners. Oh, thank God there is hope. There is hope for those who at their best come short of the glory of God. There is the hope of the righteousness of faith. There is the hope of Christ's righteousness imputed to us and received by faith alone. There is hope for what Isaiah calls the robe of righteousness in Isaiah 61 and verse 10. This hope of righteousness by faith is also called the hope of the gospel. In Colossians 1.23, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27, the hope of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, in hope of eternal life. Titus 1.2, you begin to see then why this is called a blessed hope. In Titus 2.13, it is indeed a blessed hope. Blessed in the incredible benefits that are conveyed to guilty sinners who have come to trust in Jesus Christ. I wonder, what are you hoping for this afternoon, dear Christian? Are you hoping for heaven? Are you hoping for God's favor? Are you hoping for grace and salvation on that day when Christ is revealed? 
I suppose in a sense everyone hopes for life and everyone hopes for a favorable outcome on judgment day. But is your hope a well-founded hope? Or is it after the order of the way in which the world hopes? The world will say, I hope I'm going to heaven. But their assurance of it is based at most on a puffed-up view of themselves or in a very low view of God's standards. Even though Bildad's words were misapplied to Job, they were and are certainly true in general. Listen to what Bildad says in Job chapter 8. He says, Can the rush grow up without mire? Can the flag grow without water? Whilst it is yet in his greenness and not cut down, it withereth before any other herb. So are the paths of all that forget God, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish, whose hope shall be cut off, and whose trust shall be a spider's web. Oh, there is going to be so many people, I'm afraid, that find that their hope is vain on Judgment Day. Job himself asks the question in Job 27 and verse 8, For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he hath gained when God taketh away his soul? The issue is one to be taken seriously and certainly not one to trifle with. And this leads to my next point. We've seen where the Christian fixes his hope. Let's think next for a moment on how we fix our hope. I said in my introduction that the first two phrases in verse 13 serve to modify the actual command to hope to the end. Those two phrases are, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Listen again to the way Young's literal translation states it. Wherefore, having girded up the loins of your mind, being sober, hope perfectly upon the grace that is being brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so you could say that these first two phrases, having girded up the loins of your mind and being sober, describe to us the manner in which the Christian is to fix or set his hope on the grace of God. The allusion in the first phrase is to the loose flowing robes that were worn in ancient times which needed to be gathered together and bound up if the person wearing the robes was to run or fight or devote himself to any task that demanded any kind of physical effort. Some other English translations have chosen to describe the process a little more vividly by translating the phrase, girding the loins of your mind as preparing your minds for action. If we were to apply a modern-day phrase that I think captures the meaning, it would be something like this, roll up the sleeves of your mind. You roll up your sleeves when you're preparing to do some form of work. Rolling up your sleeves is a good modern equivalent to gird up your loins. But the thing to note here is that the rolling up of your sleeves or the girding up of your loins is something that applies to your mind. It's an intellectual exercise, in other words. Painful as it is for some people to hear it, Christianity is a thinking religion. 
It requires the use of your mind. And what is it exactly you're to roll up your sleeves of your mind to do? I think the previous verses can help us here. Notice how the ancient prophets girded up the loins of their minds, verses 10 and 11, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Here's what the prophets did, and here's what we're to do. Search out salvation. Roll up the sleeves of your mind and apply yourself diligently to searching it out. The prophets made careful inquiries. That's what we're to do. Careful inquiries amount to asking questions and seeking out answers. That's the meaning, you know, of biblical analysis. Ask questions and seek the answers. It was the practice of the prophets to do this and to do this diligently. And it seems that in their careful and diligent searches, there was something that puzzled them, but should no longer puzzle you or me. Note again the words of verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. That was the subject of their studies that they struggled with. They didn't seem to have any problem understanding the glories of the Messiah, but what do these passages mean that describe Messiah's sufferings. How, in other words, do you reconcile Isaiah 53, which describes Christ's sufferings, with Isaiah 66, which describes the glory of Messiah's reign in a new heaven and a new earth? We know that this was a perplexing topic to the prophets because when Christ himself explained it to his disciples, they didn't understand it either. And Peter sought to prevent it by his words to Christ, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Matthew sixteen twenty two. And why is this to be done? Why is it that Peter calls on his readers to gird up the loins of their minds and to apply, to apply themselves to searching out salvation? Well, a number of answers could be given here. You certainly want to understand the basis for your hope of grace and your hope of heaven. In his next epistle, Peter would call on his readers to make their calling and election sure. You certainly want to search out salvation for that reason. But you want to search it out for another reason also. Remember the setting for this epistle? Peter is writing to an afflicted people. They were undergoing severe trials to their faith. By girding up the loins of their minds for searching out salvation, they would be enabled to understand those trials, the purpose they served, and what they would lead to at last. That's certainly a good reason for you and I to gird up the loins of our minds for searching out salvation. 
only by understanding Christ's sufferings and the glory to follow and God's purpose in conforming us to his Son will you be enabled to heed the exhortation that occurs in 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Don't count it unusual. You are, after all, being conformed to your Savior, and your Savior suffered, and you're being conformed to Him. If you haven't applied yourself to searching out salvation, you'll be tempted to count your trials as strange. You won't understand God's dealings with you, You'll marvel too much at the hostility of the world toward you on account of Christ. You'll become too discouraged and downcast by circumstances in life. But when you search out and diligently apply yourself to knowing salvation, then you remember the words of Christ in Matthew 10, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, How much more shall they call them of his household? So you're to gird up the loins of your mind. And would you notice that in addition to girding up the loins of your mind, you are also to be sober. In other words, you're to be serious. Soberness, you see, doesn't merely stand in contrast to being drunk with wine. It stands in contrast to being casual and careless. Wine and strong drink are not the only things that rob a man of his sobriety. You can be drunk with the world and the world's influence. To be drunk is to be under the influence of something. You can become drunk, therefore, to all the material things of this world. Being sober means being serious. Think of what's at stake. When it comes to searching out salvation, you're dealing with the eternal destiny of your soul. You're dealing with your worldview. You're dealing with things that are of the utmost importance. These are not things to be treated lightly or casually. I'm afraid for some that name the name of Christ, their religion amounts to little more than a casual hobby at most. They're the ones who vainly wish or hope for heaven. Your hope for heaven can and should be firmly fixed in your mind and heart, and it can be if you'll gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and apply yourself to the understanding and appropriating of salvation. Hope to the end. That's the command. 
It means to set or fix your hope on the grace of God through Christ. We know what we're to fix our hope on, and you know how to fix your hope on the gospel. It remains for us to consider, finally and briefly, the why question. Why do we fix our hope on the grace to be revealed? The word hope in our text is not the first occurrence of that word. The same word occurs earlier in the chapter in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is a lively or a living hope. And what that means is that there's an element of vitality to your hope. It impacts your life. Indeed, it can and should control you. We are able to rejoice even while in heaviness, and your ability to do that depends on how well you hope to the end or set or fix your hope on the grace of God. Paul picks up on this line of thought in Romans 5 and verse 3 when he speaks of rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience, patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Do you see the terms in this passage that set forth spiritual vitality? Rejoicing in hope. There's a term depicting vitality. Patience worketh experience and experience hope. You see the connection then between experience and hope. That's a term depicting our spiritual vitality. And as a result of a hope that maketh not ashamed, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, and that too describes spiritual vitality. You see, I trust then why Peter refers to our hope as a lively hope. It impacts our joy, it impacts our experience, it affects our outlook, It impacts the love of God in our lives. I dare say that a Christian who is lacking in joy or spiritual experience or the love of Christ in his heart may not be giving due diligence to his hope. We are saved by hope, Paul writes in Romans 8.24, and they take that verse to mean that there's an ongoing impact to our salvation which is generated by hope. I think you could say there's a connection then to hope and the ongoing power of the gospel in our lives. Our hope is referred to in Hebrews 6 and verse 19 as an anchor to the soul, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, And so you could say that there's a connection between our hope and not only our vitality, but our hope and our stability. Let me just mention here the connection between our hope 
and our sanctification or our purity. John writes in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Do you begin to see then how so much depends on our hope being set or fixed on the grace of God, our joy, our experience of Christ's love, our stability, our sanctity. These are all compelling reasons, therefore, why we must hope to the end. So tell me, brothers and sisters, how is your hope this afternoon? Is it strong and steadfast? Is it well-grounded and sure? Do you know what you're hoping for? Do you know what you're hoping in? Do you understand the basis for your hope? Or is your hope something vague and ambiguous, something that you don't really tend to the way that you should? Oh, the proof is in the pudding, as the saying goes. If you're heeding the command to hope to the end, then your life will show it. You'll be joyful, even while in heaviness. You'll be stable, even in an unstable world. You'll know a spiritual vitality to your religion, because your hope will be a lively hope. May the Lord himself grant you then the Holy Spirit's power that you'll be enabled to hope, to hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for such a blessed hope We thank Thee for a lively hope. We thank Thee, Lord, that this hope does give us stability and vitality. Help us then, Lord, to tend to our hope by engaging in the same practice as the prophets and the angels of searching out salvation, knowing its plan and its purpose and the way it was executed and applied. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.